Hey, it's Yana Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. On this episode, we dive into why it's so hard to escape technology, like smartphones, why your employers might start having interviews to keep you in your position, and why the human brain is so interesting, and if the Canadian government should rethink how they package and sell cannabis if they really want to compete with the black market. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. I'm hoping, by the way, that uh, all my technology works because I carry with me necessary broadcasting gear. So if I need to to get on and jump on a show and do some do some work, I'm able to do that. Believe it or not, with just very little technology these days, that you got to have the right microphone, the right headphones, and all that stuff, and off you go. You could be working out of your car using a cell phone and sounding like you're in a big fancy million dollar studio. So uh, world's changed, thankfully. But all this technology, yeah, I know, I'm kind of leading up to a, a kind of a conversation here. I'm talking about technology, little things, right? Like for me, it's about something like I bought a car, uh, a Ford product, and it has uh, something uh, that, you know, connects to the to the car. It's called Lincoln Way, and it connects to the car and does all kinds of interesting things with, uh, uh, you know, voice commands and so on. And I got to tell you something, man, since I got this car, it's never worked right. And and and, and these people are stalking me, like they're sending me messages on my screen in my car while I'm driving. And then, of course, if you try to interact with it, it goes, no, 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 you can't do that while you're driving. But they keep asking me questions, you know, input this, press that, do that. And frankly, you know, I told my mechanic that it was a lot simpler, I think, before we had all these bells and whistles and toys and things that, for me at least, cause me all kinds of grief, make me a little anxious, frankly, and I uh, end up uh, using my, uh, focusing my attention because of my ADD, my ADD on all the little things that don't really, you know, I can't really focus on the stuff that I need to, to get them fixed, but I want it to be fixed because I want it to be perfect and it's not. Because in the world of technology, nothing is ever perfect, right? I don't know about you, but I got a fairly recent cell phone because I really rely on it. And uh, I have a carrier that every couple of years gives you one sort of for free. It's never really for free, but you get to upgrade without any money out of pocket anyway. So it seems like it's for free. That's kind of another conversation, right? When you're actually not paying for something, it seems like you're not paying for it. But ultimately you are. And then one day you look at the bill and go, oh, my gosh, how did I rack that up? Anyway, I digress. So I'm talking about computers and smartphones, and I even have a Casio Ironman watch, which is a really cool watch, and it's great. But I can only use it during a certain part of daylight savings time because I don't know how to change. I don't know how to reset it and set it and all that. I've got to push buttons and hit this one twice and this one three times, and it's just way too much for me. Everything I touch, I need to know how to use. And then the stuff that requires, you know, things like my printer, for example, which is one of the things this article is about where it says technology is stalking me and I can't escape. It's the name of the article. Heather Malik from uh, the um, a columnist from the Toronto Sun uh, wrote this. Um, anyway, she, she I'm sorry, she might actually be from the star as well for what that's worth. Um, anyway. Talking about the whole concept of, you know, having to refill your printer ink and your printer telling you that you need ink. And then when you stop paying for the automatic refill delivery, suddenly your printer doesn't work anymore. You buy stuff, you pay for it, generally lots, you know, often a big chunk of money, but it's not really yours because the people who built it still have some kind of control. The Ford company who built my car that I'm paying, you know, paying a, a chunk of money every month to drive. They also have a lot of control over it. And if they want to, and I know this for a fact, all of a sudden they can send out a signal and my car stops dead wherever it is. So are you actually in control of your technology or is it stalking you? Is it controlling you? 877-399-9898. You can send me a message by text. You can call in by phone. Got a little bit of time we can talk about this. The conversation I want to have, though, is the technology is it stalking you? Well, according to Charlie Wurzel, who is a journalist, a technology journalist, he bought an HP Hewlett Packard printer and had inevitably subscribed to the Instant Ink, its auto refill program. So when his credit card expired, he writes, it stopped paying for the mandated ink. So all of a sudden, HP 
shut his printer down remotely. And he had to figure out a way to get a credit card in order for the ink to flow again. So I can tell you, I didn't have such an experience, but I can tell you that um, I keep filling my printer with printer ink. It doesn't look like the ink levels are so low, but when it gets down to like halfway, it keeps sending me messages to fill more, fill more, fill more. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what, man? Like I got, I got a lot of room left here, you know? Like there's a whole lot of room left in the well, the ink well. Yet they're telling me at half at halfway, you know, ding, 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 ding. Without the dinging, just all they send is little notices and things that come up on my screen at the most inappropriate times that I need to fill up my ink. So what do I do? I look at it and go, well, it doesn't look like it needs ink, but I may as well. So I keep printer ink on hand and fill it up because I have the kind of uh, printer that allows you to fill it up as opposed to putting in a new a new cartridge each time. I thought that that was kind of nutso too because I was buying printer cartridges coming out of style. I could have bought uh, three new printers for the cost of, uh, you know, half a dozen printer inks, right? And it's the same with cell phones. You know, they're constantly mandated, you know, updates. And if you don't sign on for the for the time to update and, you know, allow for it, at least I'm able to schedule mine for the middle of the night when I, hopefully it doesn't affect me. But then I get up in the morning and I go look at my phone and I do the restart, reset, or whatever you're supposed to do. And inevitably it's missing stuff, right? It's missing stuff. Now I got to go online, do a search, call my friends, go, what the hell happened? Oh, did you get a Samsung update in the middle of the night? Yeah, how'd you know? Well, it happened to me too. And then all of a sudden I'm missing like three quarters of my pictures. They're there somewhere. I just can't find them. What's happening to us? And the more that artificial intelligence starts to take place in our life, and I got to tell you, I use it. I use it for writing articles. I use it for writing uh, for writing scripts if I'm giving giving a talk. Not completely, but it gives me a basis from which to start sometimes. And then I could fill in and clean it up and make it more Yona-like, not so much computer-like. But some of the stuff's pretty good. And it's coming. It's coming. And the more we rely on this technology, the more we're concerned, certainly, more I'm concerned. I think you are too. You're looking at me like you're you're shaking your head like he's right. He's right. You know, the more that you the more that you you rely on this stuff, the more anxious you become if it if it's not working perfectly. And what does perfectly mean? And 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 what's expected, right? What's expected? So the reality for me is, you know, I, I really try hard to uh, stay ahead of things. I try hard to stay ahead of updates and all that kind of stuff. I stay ahead of, try to stay ahead of the messages. But I'll tell you, my phone now gives me messages when something's coming up, you know, notifications and all that stuff. And I guess to some great great extent, it's a good thing. Certainly helps me stay organized and in control. But at the end of the day, it seems like the computers, my car, my phone, and even my smartwatch are telling me what to do. And that kind of makes me a little on the uncomfortable side. So I don't know. Let me know what you think. We're going to talk about this again later in the show as well. Got a couple of guests here. They're actually sisters. uh, And we're talking about invisible disabilities, right? So I'm a guy with AD. I know I keep talking about it. You're so sick of hearing about it when I keep telling you. But anyway, it, 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 for whatever it's worth, if we've just met for the first time, uh, I'm going to share it. If we met, you know, if we meet weekly, then I apologize for uh, telling the same story over and over again. But, you know, got to play for those that haven't heard about me or from me before. So I've got a bunch of disabilities. I've got a physical disability where I can't walk very far. I can't stand for very long. I have to use a mobility scooter if I'm going through an airport or going through a mall. Uh, But it's interesting because when I get out of my car and I park in a disabled parking spot using my disabled parking permit, which you can only get if my doctor signs out, signs off on my requirement for it and based on my MRI and my and my x-rays, which I almost want to carry around in my car. And I'll tell you why, because people look at me when I get out of the car like, what the heck is wrong with him and why is he parking there? Um, it's because I can't walk very far. And then they see me go around to the back and get the scooter and it's like, oh, okay, okay. Because I don't look like an old guy. At least I don't think like I look like an old guy. And then, of course, I got ADD, OCD, you know, and and anxiety disorder, all, dis, you know, invisible disabilities. Had somebody tell me the other day, man, you know, your life is really together. You know, you got this going on and that going on and, you know, really nice wife and a good family and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, dude, like you haven't seen it from the inside. You're only looking at it from the other. What does that mean? 
I said, well, you know, I have this going on, this going on, and this going on. It's like, really? I never would have guessed. Well, no, you're not going to guess. That's the whole concept around this invisible disability discussion. The Center for Disability Rights lists the following as examples of invisible disabilities, learning differences, right? Deafness, you can't hear. Autism, wow, for sure. Prosthetics, people wear prosthetics. They're fabulously made these days. You can hardly tell. Traumatic brain injury, for sure. Mental health disabilities are almost impossible to detect unless somebody is really having a difficult time. Things like bipolar disorder, diabetes, ADHD or ADD, fibromyalgia, arthritis, Alzheimer's, anxiety issues, sleep disorders, Crohn's disease, post-traumatic stress disorder, epilepsy, multiple sclerosis, cystic fibrosis are just a few of these invisible disabilities. Joining me this evening is Heather Taylor and her sister, Sarah Taylor, and they are the hosts and producers of Brains Podcast. And Brains is spelt with three A's, unless my producer made a mistake here. Uh, But um, yeah, man, they're on the show. We're going to talk about these invisible disabilities. Um, Welcome to the show, Heather and Sarah. How are you? Thank you so much for having us. Yes, <laughs> we're sisters, and we'll talk over each other a lot. So yeah, I was gonna I'm... say I, I I got three brothers, and I'm not sure how this is going to work because I gotta okay, Heather, you gotta shut up because Sarah can talk. That would that's be like usually... what, what, that, yeah, that's, that's what goes, goes on usually. in my kitchen Heather's table, the... right? Yeah. Heather's yeah, yeah, the talker. <laughs> okay, so put your hand up if it's Heather. Okay, Heather, that's you. I'm gonna ask you the question first. I'll direct you. That way, there's like okay. there's some organized discussion here, so we don't end up, you know, all of us not liking each other later. I'm just kidding. Of course. <laughs> so, how did you, how did you guys, how did you guys kind of put together a podcast? And first of all, how was it working together? And then, how did you come to putting something this cool together together? Well, I'll start. Sarah, well, we'll start with Heather. We're going to let Heather okay. talk first. I'm the oldest, so yes, yeah, so first. <laughs> um, so. Sarah and I have been talking about our brains, I think probably our whole life. And um, we kind of, we grew up with uh, family members with invisible disabilities. We ourselves have invisible disabilities. So I think we've always had that part of our life and part of our the discussions um, that we've had together. Um, Sarah and I are both work in film and television and we've worked together in various capacities and I think Sarah was the first one who said to me, I want to do a podcast at some point. And I was like, I just don't want to do it in a way that's navel gazy or, you know, I really wanted to talk about something to make a difference. And so did she. And, um, you know, I have ADHD, so we have something in common. Um, And Sarah can speak for herself. But um, we decided we should have these conversations that we've been having our whole life, but we should have them with people with lived experiences of different invisible disabilities or different expertise in um, things that affect your brains, and then talk about what we want to see in film and television that is accurate representation so we can start to create nuanced conversations and change the way that people look at um, all of these different disabilities and including invisible disabilities. So Sarah, you throw a ditto on that? Yes. And I feel like the working together thing has actually been really good. Surprisingly for sisters, you know, sometimes (laughs) we don't, when we're younger, we didn't always get get along, but as as grown humans who work on their brains, we, we get on quite well. And Heather has uh, great skills because she's a writer director and I'm a film and television editor. So we're able to break up the work in the podcast realm quite well. I do all the editing. I do, um, some of the graphic design stuff and Heather does the writing and, you know, vetting the edits and making it shorter. Cause I like long episodes. She likes short episodes. Those are the things we fight about, <laughs> but also um, with Heather's ADHD, she's really good at, well, maybe this, I shouldn't say it's her ADHD. Heather's brain is very good at uh, research. And so when we are looking for somebody to, to come on the podcast for a specific topic, we're trying to investigate, she can find, find these amazing guests so i think we make a really great team with our two brains that's remarkable i was watching the show succession i don't know if you've ever watched it but it's a family of you know this powerful (laughs) family of 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 siblings that basically are constantly doing each other nasty and here i'm hearing the two of you like you're so into each other but sarah tell me the truth is heather a little bit bossy (laughs) um i can say yes but i can say also that i 
am also bossy. So we are together, sometimes <laughs> hit head. We're, we're both very stubborn. But to add to the family dynamic, my yeah. our little brother does the music for the podcast. And Sick. my husband does the mixing and mastering. <laughs> so this is a wow. whole family. And, our, and my daughter was on one of the episodes. So it's like a real family uh, affair. Amazing. I know Heather, uh, Sarah Heather mentioned she's got uh, ADHD. You you feel like sharing? Are you oh, yes, similar yes. similar issues or not? So I have generalized anxiety disorder, um, which I just was officially diagnosed with. I knew that I had anxiety my whole life, but I never yeah. actually went down the pathway of, um, you know, getting a proper diagnosis. A diagnosis. And actually, <laughs> it was through the podcast that I decided to investigate because we did an episode on OCD and a lot of the things that uh, the guests on the, the OCD episode talked about was like, oh, that sounds like what happens in my brain. Like, what is, mm-hmm. oh, I should, I should probably check this out. So I found a therapist who d- did proper OCD testing and discovered that, no, it wasn't OCD. It was generalized anxiety disorder. So it was just, now I know. And now it's like something new to explore. According to the Canadian Center for Disease Control, or the Center for Disease Control, estimates that approximately 26% of the population live with a disability, many of whom live with an invisible disability. That's what we're talking about here tonight. I'm talking with the Taylor sisters, Heather and Sarah. They are the producers and hosts of Brains Podcast with three A's. Have a listen here uh, on this clip here where um, uh, Susan talks about the podcast, Heather and Susan talk about uh, horror movies and so on. Just uh, have a listen. The viewership of horror films and horror thrillers skyrocketed during the pandemic. And it was because people either, you know, a repeat of watching like old slasher or old horror films is knowing what was going to happen and and feeling like... (laughs) My life's not as that as bad as that right now, you know, no yes. one's burning me up at a gym. I just had a bad day. Um, and that's what's really helpful for it. So I think that it's been a really beautiful piece to see horror help people going through trauma and, you know, mental health issues and anxiety and, and panic disorder even. Yeah, really cool. Uh, Susan, uh, Sarah, excuse me, Sarah and Heather Taylor, welcome back, uh, ladies. I appreciate you being here tonight. Um, you know, you talk about focusing on invisible disabilities. We're going to talk about it here in a mm-hmm. second. You know, I, I, as I said, I try. I roll around on a on a on a scooter, and it's in, impossible for you to understand for me to be able to share with you that it's remarkable how many people don't see me. And it's like they got to have their eyes closed. They don't recognize I'm scootering around, not because I'm looking for an easy way. It's because I have an issue. Um, Why Mm -hmm. specifically invisible disabilities kind of got you, you know, kind of in your craw and something the two of you really wanted to be passionate about? Uh, Maybe we start with uh, we start with uh, let's go back to Heather. Yeah. Oh, I was was pointing at Sarah, but that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm on I'm on radio, unfortunately, so I can't see you pointing at her, but I believe you. Um, I think for us, I think we, we expand a little bit beyond invisible disability, but we try to look at like what is affecting your mental health, what is affecting or, or disabilities that are impacting your brain. Um, for us, it's because we've seen a lot of misrepresentation of things that we have lived experience in. And I think because they're invisible disabilities, it's sometimes hard to understand it on the surface, what's really happening. And so I think for us to really want to dive into something to show what's kind of beyond the expected or what's beyond the stereotype is really important um, for ourselves as well as for, we hope, other people who are either dealing with it themselves or know people or hopefully one day like a writer or producer or director or editor will listen to our podcast and go, oh, I'm going to make me make some a change. I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to think about whatever it is in a different light. And so for us, it was just really important because it's something that we do in our own work um, and that we really advocate for in the work that we do, whether I'm in a room or I'm writing something or, you know, Sarah's always thinking about that in in the edit, the docs that she edits too. Um, And I think for us, it's just always been something present in our lives and something that's been frustrating to us. And so this is a chance for us to really have a conversation with people who live with these different invisible disabilities and beyond every single day. Cool. Sarah, question for you. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, people, 
you know, sort of don't understand why folks like us just can't sort of suck it up and figure it out and kind of get over it. You know, I have people say to me all the time, you know, I, I talk about not wanting to, you know, somebody invited me to something. I said, no, it brings up my anxiety. And they say, yeah, but you're an expert. Can't you just kind of make, you know, control yourself? Um, explain, <laughs> explain it to everyone. Give me a break here. Explain to everyone that uh, when we're talking about these invisible disabilities, like mental health in particular, um, it's 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 not within our capability, right? So why do people think the brain can just work like that? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting thing that even Heather and I speak about with ADHD. It's not that we need to we need to understand our brains and we understand the environments we put our brains in, and I are which is us. And so yeah, like you know, in, my anxiety might get increased in certain situations. It doesn't mean that I don't necessarily need to go to those situations, but maybe there's something I can do, or if I'm going to see someone they can maybe make an accommodation for me that's going to make it a more comfortable place. Or I can just be aware of what will make my anxiety feel less and then be able to advocate for myself, which I wouldn't have been able to do until I started to actually go through uh, working with a therapist who is anxiety specialist to help me see what, what is anxiety and what is just life and what is like anxiety adding to the life. Because when I, I've lived with anxiety my whole life, sometimes I don't realize that I'm having anxiety where my therapist will be like, well, if you didn't have anxiety, this, your level five that you're experiencing, which you don't think is much, is actually, would actually feel like a level 10 for somebody who doesn't have anxiety. So like, we just have to, I don't know if I'm answering your question the, <laughs> the way you might've expected it, but I feel like it's all about us getting to know ourselves. And if it's, if it's a situation that you know that it's just not going to be worthwhile, like you're going to leave and have to like recover for three days because your anxiety was so high that whole time, then you're not going to want to do that thing. And that's okay. Cause we can't like, we can't always just turn it off. That's not a possibility. Sometimes you can try to work through it. You can like um, find the tools that make you feel less anxious, but sometimes it's not worth it. It's like I'm, I just found I, wanna... I just I just found two perfectly new friends that I want to hang out with. Heather, I'm coming to you. I, I, I'm, I'm okay, coming okay. to you right now. I promise. Here we go. Um, <laughs> this mind over matter. It's a popular adage, right? Um, mm -hmm. Why do you think it, it's a popular saying today? People are saying, "Well, you know, it's just you can control your brain. You really can't." You know, pursuant to what Sarah was just saying, Heather, why do you think people are jumping on this adage of mind over matter? Mm. I know you just I, want to I... shoot them, right? <laughs> Sarah has lots to, to I know Sarah has lots to say on that but um, I think my my brain is literally I was born with a different brain my brain is different there's and I think this idea that um, we want to we live in a, a very capitalist or a very um, money driven world and I believe that we always want to do better to con drive ourselves to like, well, we can just change this if we think hard enough, work hard enough, do enough. And I've realized that in doing those things, I've actually harmed my brain. I've harmed, you know, my own mental health because I'm trying to ignore the signals my brain is telling me, which is slow down, stop, take a break. Can you please don't? Like all those things it's telling me. But I but when we focus on that idea of like, well, if we can just we can just think our way through it, we can just force our way through it, we're actually not really listening to ourselves. And I think the most important thing to do is to to allow your your body and your brain to give you those clues. Like the reason why sometimes like I have a bad back because I had an accident being someone with ADHD, not only clumsy, but would put myself into dangerous situations like sledding on a ski hill don't do that um and i hurt my back really badly and i was 16 and i thought no no problem it's okay you can look at that um and i and my back seized up when i was 19 and i couldn't walk but i was doing like three plays and i was working a full-time job and i was working another job and i was doing this other thing and and i was also going through an immensely stressful time in my life and my body was finally like you know what we've given you all the clues to to, to stop so we're going to make you stop. Mm -hmm. And I think there, if you're, if you're going to say mind over matter, I could have pushed my way through all of that, but it's not, it's damaging to me. Um, so I think it's about really listening to what your body and your brain are telling you versus I'm just going to force it to do what I want it to do because I've got to be successful and I've got to do better and I've yeah. got to, yeah. you know, do all of those things. Um, instead of going, wait a minute, why don't I create 
a better environment for me? Why don't I find better ways to work for myself so that I can protect um, my brain and my body? Because this is the only one I got. And, uh, and I think that we have to change that mentality to start to really um, embrace uh, that idea of creating that no, every space is different needed. Every space needs to be different for everybody. So if we create spaces with universal design that allows people to have spaces that are accommodating for everybody, we can create better environments for us to live and work in. And to me, that is the key. I think the most, yeah, the most important thing my therapist said to me was like, you are, you are square and you've been trying to fit yourself into a circle for your whole life. You know, we're talking about stay interviews. It's something that companies do with employees when they're trying to take their temperature and they typically want to keep them, right? So there's an exit interview when someone's leaving the company, resigning or walking out or quitting, whatever. You try to get a, something called an exit interview where you can learn a little bit more about what you could do better as a company in the future. And stay interviews are where you're learning more about what's going on with the employee, what they're interested in, the kinds of questions you ask are really quite interesting. And, you know, you're looking for a result from the questions. You're looking to find out what makes a person, you know, what keeps them uh, coming to work every day, the kinds of interesting things uh, that um, you would find out about their mindset when they're at work or when they're thinking of coming to work, right? Um, So the kinds of questions that are asked in a stay interview, for example, um, they're they're pretty pretty, uh, straightforward, right? And the idea, the whole concept of a stay interview is... um, uh, it's a contact that to help manage really understand why employees stay and what might cause them to eventually leave, especially if you're worried about your workforce, right? And these days, everyone's worried about workforce because people are coming and going like they're going out of style and it's impossible to find people to take a job today. I mean, we hired somebody for one of the countries, c- companies I coach for a $125,000 senior job. Guy came in for the interview, did great, had a second interview, did great, did the interview with me to see if he fit with the culture or everything was great and then didn't show up to work so they're designed it's an it's an effective way for managers to ask standard structured questions in a very casual way so the to open the stay stay interview a manager might say something like i'd like to talk with you about reasons why you stay at the company and i understand uh, might be able to you know i'd like to know more about you know what you enjoy about the company the you know the kinds of questions like what do you look forward to when you come to work every day right Interesting question. What does somebody let me think about your own answer? Uh, if you feel like giving me a call about this, 877-399-9898 or give us a text. That works really well, too. What do you what do you like most or least about working here? If you're looking at the employee, what keeps you working here? I ask questions when I do these at, at different companies. I ask things like, what do you think about on the way to work? What do you think about on the way home from work? How do you feel the job helps you in terms of your work-life balance, especially today with so many people working at least hybrid from home, if not totally from home? What would make your job more satisfying? Is another great question to ask somebody. And the idea is to pay attention to these stay interviews. And when I work in a in a company and I'm I'm doing um, I'm doing coaching or, or performance work, you know, we interview everybody in the company. We ask everybody the same questions, put it on a graph and a chart, and then I'm able to help the company understand what they need to do differently or better. And things like, if I could change something for your job, what would that be? How do you think you feel? How do you feel about being recognized? Do you feel like you're being recognized at the company? Are people here paying attention to you and giving you enough, you know, pats on the back, so to speak? Do you think that you're being rewarded accordingly in terms of the work that you do, not just money, but terms of, you know, recognition? And what talents are not being used in your current role? What what talents do you have that, that, that we're not taking advantage of? I mean, these are great questions to ask if you're trying to get the most out of somebody, you know, and by asking them questions, asking employees questions like this, especially employees that you intend to keep for a long period of time, it shows like in any other common communication relationship, communicative relationship, it shows that you care, that it matters. It's like going on a date. If you've ever been on a date, it's been so long since I've been on a date. I date my girl now, but we've been together almost 35 years. But when you run, you know, if you remember your days of dating, or if you're still dating and out there meeting new people, everybody tells you the same thing. Ask questions and listen. People love 
to share if someone's interested in what they have to say. So that whole dynamic in terms of building, bringing that out in an employee, that whole dynamic of being able to get the best out of somebody because you seem to care and, and give a damn goes a long way, my man. goes a long way. makes a big difference in people's lives. And what motivates you to be here? What motivates you, period, is another good question. What demotivates you is the flip side of that same question. And if you're here, what would you like to learn? And are you learning the things that you're interested in? Are we teaching you what we need to teach you as a company? Are we giving the benefit of growth and opportunity to be better, to be at your best? What can I do as a manager to support you better? What can you, you know, what types of things can I provide you with? Because support can I provide you with that I may not be providing you with at the moment? These are the kinds of questions that bring out the very best in people. What might tempt you to leave the company? It's a risky question to ask, but an important one. I'd like to know. It's important to me. I don't want to lose you. We don't want to lose you as a company. What do we need to do to make sure we keep you here beyond a raise and the financial benefits? And you'd be surprised when you ask these kinds of questions that money doesn't seem to be the one that comes out the most. It's all about the other stuff, right? And then to close this, this day interview, it's important that you summarize the key reasons that the employee gave for staying or potentially leaving the organization and work with the employee to develop a stay plan. Okay, well, I hear this and I hear that. You know, you have some concerns about this and concerns about that. Why don't we together, why don't we look at addressing those concerns? And here's what I have in mind. Why don't we do this, 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 and this? I'll provide you with this, this, and this, and so on and so forth. Creating a plan that, you know, again, these are just things that underneath the surface show that you care enough that it matters what the employee feels about their job and their experience of being there. You know, let me summarize, for example, a closing statement for someone, if you're doing a state interview, if you're an employer and you're doing this, things like, let me summarize what I heard you say and the reasons that you stay at the company. And then again, let's develop a plan to make sure that you stay here. And I appreciate that you're sharing your thoughts with me and I'm, I'm committed to doing what I can to make this a great place for you to work. You know, it's important to ask the questions. It's important to know. People want to be talked about. People want to be able to share opportunities because it makes a difference, right? So who should do the stay interview? I think it should be done. In my case, it's done by the the, 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 the manager, the person's direct manager. And then certainly if, uh, if there's an HR person or in my case, I work for a couple of the companies I work for have HR people. A couple that I work for don't directly have HR people. I kind of serve that role a little bit as, as the company coach as well. So it's really important that you recognize what the role here is in trying to establish a good understanding with these with your employees who, frankly, you know, you don't have much of a business without them. So, you know, I've talked to a lot of employers and people that I've that I've interviewed that have been interested in me doing coaching work for their company. And it's really interesting that, you know, at the end of the day, I seem to interview them more than they interview me because I don't want to work somewhere or be a part of something or provide services to an organization where we're not aligned. We don't feel the same. And I'm all about empowering employees, not forcing them to do things out of fear or due to financial risk and reward. Money is a great benefit. You need to have money to eat. No one wants to work for free, but there's lots of people out there that'll pay. I know people that have taken jobs or stayed at jobs or gone back to jobs for less money because of the environment, because of how they felt about themselves at the end of the day. Listen, my friend, it's straight up. You don't ever want to be in an environment that doesn't make you feel good about yourself. doesn't matter if that's going to mom's house for dinner on a Sunday night or it's dating someone that you're, doesn't treat you well, or having you know a relationship with a friend who constantly puts you down and makes you feel bad. You want to be around people who make you feel good about you. It's the number one thing in life. Being able to look at yourself in the mirror and go, yeah, I got it going on. And other people think so too. So it's very important through the course of a stay interview, if you're an employer, important, important to do that. And if you're an employee, you might want to recommend that to the HR people if they're not doing it or to your boss, to your manager. Say, hey, listen, I heard this really cool guy on Saturday night talking about stay interviews. Maybe it's something we can do here. Get a chance to voice how you feel. And hopefully the company will change for the better 
and do really and do really good things to help the environment be you know more engaging, more empowering, more empowering and healthy for the other people that are in your organization. So you know what? It's good for everybody. It's a win-win situation. Got to be honest though. You got to be able to tell your boss how you really feel without fear that you're going to lose their job, you lose your job because it's not supposed to work like that. talking tonight we're continuing in our uh, series of um, talks about how to manage depression and the difference between just being a little bit blue and being depressed you know there's a big difference between whether you feel like getting out of bed in the morning and uh, you know what something you can just you know feeling a little down a little blue you can't really drag your head out of bed but it's not a big deal versus someone who is so debilitated that getting out of bed is just so, you know, such um, such an, a, 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 an amount of work. You know, the effort that it goes in to for someone that goes into someone who is, you know, has a depression issue to just try to get through the day is often very difficult. So, you know, we talked about last week, we, the tip number one was talking about connecting with people, you know, taking, uh, talking to people, making sure you share your feelings with those that are close to you, helping someone else by doing some volunteering, you know, have a lunch out with a friend, ask a loved one to check in with you, someone you trust, uh, check in with you, you check in with them, maybe a buddy system, um, accompany someone to the movies, a concert, some kind of small get together important that you help people stay uh, comfortable in their own skin by keeping them company. That's a big part of it, right? Call or email an old friend. That's a great way to connect. Go for a walk or a workout with a buddy, a friend, a neighbor. Schedule weekly dinner dates, right? Meet new people. Take a class or join some kind of club. And confide in a clergy member, teacher, or sports coach if someone's around that can help you with some of your thoughts. Well, today we're going to talk about doing the things that make you feel good. In order to overcome depression, you have to do some things that help you relax and energize you, right? So depression really isn't my thing. I deal with anxiety, OCD, and ADD. uh, But I know a lot of people treat a lot of people that have uh, have depression issues and uh, includes following some kind of healthy lifestyle, right? Learning how to, to better manage your stress, setting limits on what you're able to do and not able to do, and making sure that you schedule fun activities in your day. Finding some joy, right? That's the thing. We're hunting for joy. That's the big thing here that we're talking about uh, this morning or this evening, depends on where you live in Canada, right? Doing things that you enjoy, big part of it, right? Um, so, Doing the things that you enjoy, right? Getting to a movie, cooking, uh, taking your doggy for a walk, uh, going to a film, going to a going to a theater, going to play music, playing music yourself if you have that skill set and you're a bit of a musician, being able to play music. I got a bunch of patients that uh, have a you know an amateur musical musical talents to the level of you know being a you know an adequate amateur if you will but able to kind of soothe themselves with their own abilities to play certain instruments piano guitar those kinds of things seem to be a big deal i have a patient or had a patient for a lot of a long time a couple of years actually she used to play the harp and that was her thing right is playing the harp was a, a big way for her to relax so doing things that you feel good about things that you like to do that make you feel good about who you are right make you feel strong and uh and just kind of help you get that smile on your face right put that a little bit of joy in your life learning how to manage stress that's a big part of it too right so not only does the stress prolong and worsen depression but it can also trigger it create a balanced schedule for yourself making sure that you're able to organize the things in your life that fit into a schedule that makes sense, right? Uh, practicing relaxation techniques, meditating, breathing, those types of things are very important. Have an, have, can have a huge impact on how you feel about yourself. Practice gratitude. Gratitude is a big part of helping people get over a whole bunch of things. Uh, grief is one of them. Anxiety is another. Uh, depression is another, right? And you're able to deal with all these kinds of things if you put this kind of practice into play. It's developing something that we call a wellness toolbox, specifically designed to deal with depression, right? So when you come up with a thing of list that you think a list of things that you like to do, that you really like to do, that make you feel really good, right? That list could be just something that you do for a quick, just for a quick mood boost. Right. Or sometimes just for, you know, to help it cope with a particular peel, uh, you know, period of time where you're just not feeling exactly at your best. Spend a little more time in nature. That's a really good way to do things. Right. 
maybe make a list if you want. I talk about this a lot with my patients. So I talk about this a lot with my, my clients, my, my coaching clients as well. You know, list, make a list of the things you like about yourself. Read a really good book. That's another way to kind of get your head into something else. Watch a funny movie. I think humor has a huge role to play in helping people manage their mental health. It certainly works for me. You know, if you're focused on something that's, uh, you know, you know, something that makes you laugh, it makes you giggle, it helps take away the bluesy feeling. It helps take away that kind of negative feeling that you have in your, in your gut that, you know, you're kind of trying to run away from or get away from in some way, shape, or form. Very important, right? It's very important that we're able to to um, to to look at ourselves in a way and, and and kind of be you know humorous about about ourselves to some degree, right? Being able to 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 look at ourselves and see each other with a little bit of humor is not a terrible thing either. Not taking ourselves so seriously is helpful, right? Take a long hot bath. This is something I recommend to so many people, and it's it's highly underrated. Nice, long, warm bath. I do it at least three, four times a week if I can, right? My wife takes a bath at least once a day. I mean, beyond just for the cleansing benefit, but the just the comfort, the warmth, the, you know, the, the, the ease of, of, of just lying there and relaxing. Great place to kind of close your eyes a little bit and practice breathing techniques. Of course, not, you know, making sure that there's not enough water that you're going to slide into it with your eyes closed, but or the idea isn't to fall asleep. It's just to relax. Granted, that that nice, warm, cozy kind of womb-like feeling. I don't want everybody, ooh, everybody's going, ooh. But there's something about warm water, something about warmth, sunlight, that kind of stuff that makes us feel better. Meditation, learning how to meditate is really a good thing. I I've, I have a couple of friends of mine that are experts in meditation. They can go on a long trip. I've seen, a, I've seen, I've been with buddies of mine that have gone off into a meditative state for 25, 30 minutes. Around, you know, when, when there's lots of people around, this is not like something they're hiding in a corner and that nobody can see them. It's, you know, being able to meditate even in a, a place where there's a certain amount of activity and noise. What a great skill to have. It's like taking a vacation without having to get on an airplane. How cool is that? If you've got a pet, play with it. If you don't have one and you're able to have one because of you don't have any allergy restrictions or whatever, pets are a really good a really good distraction. I have a little a little doggy. His name is Siggy. He's six and a half pounds of absolute delicious. Doesn't shed, hypoallergenic, and his poo is the size of a half a crayon. Like it's just the right size. It's easy to pick up, and it's not like I need a shovel or anything. That's a big part of it. I know everybody. What's he talking about dog poo? Well, it's part of the whole process, right? I mean, having an animal means there's animal care involved. So I have a little guy. You may like bigger animals. Who knows? You may be a cat lover. Maybe you like a bird, rabbit, something like that. But play with your pet. Get a pet if you don't have one. Something that kind of takes you out of you, takes you away from just thinking about yourself. I have, I have patients that I've talked to that do, in fact, have animals, do have pets. And, you know, they it forces them to get out of bed in the morning. It forces them to get over their icky feeling because they got to go walk this thing. It needs to pee. It needs to do its business. Talk to friends, face-to-face family, family visits, friends, people that are close to you that make you feel good. Listening to music, that's a great way. And do some things that provide you with some spontaneous fun that's not so planned, if you will, right? These are all the things that help us get out of a depression. These are all things that you can do to get to that help-you-feel-good place, which is really important. part of enjoying your weekend or your Saturday or your Friday night or whatever includes, you know, some form of cannabis, recreational cannabis use. Perhaps you're not a smoker, so you like to eat it. You know, you don't vaporize it. You just, you know, you want to eat it. Well, Canada is trying to lift or loosen the THC limits that uh, and the packaging rules, according to the Competition Bureau. And the reason they're trying to do that is because they're trying to compete with the black market folks who don't have restrictions. So if you're if you're a, a cannabis user, whether you're a recreational cannabis user or you're a medical cannabis user, you know, you have choices of where to buy your products. And, you know, it's sometimes difficult to, to, to you know, differentiate between the legit operators and the illegitimate operators. They kind of look the same online. But, you know, when you're buying a, a product, certainly in Ontario, where I live, through the Ontario Cannabis Store, there's a restriction to how much THC you can get in your edibles. 
So hold that thought for a second. Imagine, okay? So for example, you buy a package of gummies. There's 10 gummies in each in the package, and each gummy is 10, has 10 milligrams of THC in it. Total amount of THC in the whole package is 100 milligrams of THC. Well, if you're someone that consumes a lot of weed, either smoking it, eating it, or whatever, you know, 10, to, 10 milligrams of THC is probably not very much. If you've ever used edibles, by the way, or marijuana or cannabis in any way, shape, or form, now it's not illegal. You can talk to me about it. Give me a call, 877-399-9898, or give us a text. That works well, too, right? We'd love to We'd love to hear from uh, if uh, love to hear from extra by voice uh, to hear how you feel about uh, edibles, marijuana in general, cannabis uh, use either recreational or otherwise. So let's go back to this whole concept of of eating an edible. So the idea of eating an edible is that you know you 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 consume. Uh, a, a particular something, whether it's a gummy, a lollipop, a piece of chocolate of some sort. Uh, I, I saw recently in in uh, in a uh, in a in a reserve on a reserve uh, in their cannabis store, uh, they had um, uh, infused uh, pretzels with peanut butter and THC. Uh, they, it comes in in the, the little tiny little licorice guys. Like if you look at some of the packaging which the government's looking to change and alter, by the way. If you look at some of the packaging, it's really hard to differentiate between the, the ones that have THC in them and the ones that are just regular candy or snacks. So uh, the competition watchdog says the federal government should consider loosening the restrictive rules on cannabis and how it's packaged to raise the, the amount of psychoactive ingredients that are allowed in edibles in order to help the industry thrive and stamp out black market uh, the black market while maintaining public safety. I don't think you can do all of those things together. So let's go back to someone who eats adult, who eats uh, THC in some form. So you take, you know, if you're not used to it, you take one one gummy. And by the way, sometimes it can take up to up to two hours for this stuff to kick in. So let's say you take a gummy or two. Maybe you figure, okay, I can take two of these ten. Remember, 100 milligrams if you eat all ten. Ten milligrams if you eat one at a time. Right. So 10 milligrams, if you're not used to eating or taking or, or conge- you know, smoking or whatever, if you're not used to, uh, in, uh, you know, taking in cannabis in any form, 10 milligrams might be an awful lot, might be nothing. You know, if you're six foot four and you weigh 275 pounds, you're not going to feel 10 milligrams. But if you're 93 pounds and you're, uh, you know, five foot one and you're not used to this stuff and you've, you know, a pretty quick metabolism, 10 milligrams might be just enough to have you feeling pretty good. Problem is you don't know this right away. It takes a while. It might take an hour or two. So you're thinking like most people, I hear these stories all the time, by the way, I'm not making this stuff up. I promise. People will say, well, you know, I took a gummy. I waited like half an hour, man. And like nothing happened. So I took another one and then waited another half an hour and figured, well, I don't know, maybe these things are just really kind of weak. So I took another one. Well, now the guy's got 30, the person's got 30 milligrams of THC in them. The first 10 hasn't even kicked in yet. All of a sudden now, you know, three hours later, you're off like Jack the Bear. Like you're so high, you can't keep control of yourself. And this is an awful experience if you're not expecting it. If, 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 if the cannabis, if the THC takes you over, if you have so much in your system that it can be overwhelming, It's not always a positive experience. It's often not if you don't expect it. So the experts say, if you're especially if you're purchasing, you know, products with THC in them from a cannabis store, right? The experts will say, you know, wait an hour before giving something a chance to work, and if it doesn't work, right? If it doesn't work, then that you know what we're supposed to do here is is uh, is take the time. To you know, let it let it kick in, and if it doesn't kick in, then add another one. Like so, this might be a four-hour experience before you're ready to actually uh, handle the 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 product or handle the high that comes with it. My guest tonight is Rebecca Haynes Sa. She is an uh, associate professor and researcher at the University of Calgary, as well as a public health expert. Uh, Rebecca, thanks for being here tonight. We're talking about the loosening of uh, THC limits on cannabis edible cannabis products. What do you think about it? Yeah, I I heard just a bit of what you were saying, and I, I totally agree. In public health, we've tried to 
have this message, start low and go slow, a harm reduction approach to edibles, because a lot of people are used to smoked and inhaled uh, THC, and so they need that, that, you know, education on how to use edibles. At the same time, I think we've heard from experienced cannabis users that some of the percentage THC, the, the, the regs now on, on what can be in a package are just too low. And so we're looking for that sweet spot. Like we need to give a consumer what they want because if they can't get it from a legal source, it just kind of opens the door to off-market uh, illicit products. Wow. So that's a tough call, kiddo. Like that's a tough call to be in a situation where you say, okay, we need to give the people what they want and they're not getting high enough from the THC countenance <laughs> and the packages that are available today. Um, slippery slope, no? Yeah. I mean, it's very tricky. It's called the paradox of prohibition or the iron law of prohibition. So anytime we have regulations around certain substances, um, there's always a market for them. Um, and so that's not to say we make like the strongest, most potent, ridiculously high things to and market those aggressively. But it's saying, you know, we have to have a diversity of products and we have to listen to consumers. I think we've been so cautious with edibles because, um, you know, we rolled out the regs uh, a, a year later. Uh, they became legal like a year after cannabis became legal because we saw the experience of Colorado where they had just like so many different candy products marketed and children were ingesting them. And we've seen some of that here. So, yeah, it is a slippery slope, but it's kind of this paradox. You have to um, you have to cautiously try things. And I think why we started so strict is because once you open up the door, you can't go backwards, right? You can't say, okay, well, now we're going back and we're taking these things off the market. I'm talking with an expert here uh, about uh, marijuana. Her name is Rebecca haynes Sa. She's an associate professor and researcher at the University of Calgary, as well as a public health expert. Uh, before we jump to, uh, to Rebecca, have a quick listen to what a cannabis store owner says about breaking down why the government needs to make serious changes. Have a quick listen here. The, um, they're looking to eliminate the illicit market, and yet it is the taxes and fees that this industry are subject to that are really making us less competitive. So, Rebecca, the thing I just heard, uh, is it at the end of the day just about money? I think it's really challenging because there was a lot of hype and excitement about the industry, and, uh, you know, it was kind of boom and bust. And so I feel for some of the small retailers who are trying to be profitable because, yes, we need to, to market to, uh, you know, take out the illicit market per se. People need access to a safe and legal product. However, from a public health perspective, we've always wanted to have people have access, but we're not necessarily fans of seeing the market grow exponentially and diversifying it through branding and, you know, promotions. We fought that with tobacco really hard. So... Yeah, to answer your question, I think it does come back to money and people want to see exponential growth, but we kind of want to see just safe and legal access, but not uh, unfettered market growth. Right. So uh, where I'm coming from, I guess it's the concept, the difference between whether you buy a legitimate bottle of liquor that's got 40% alcohol or whether you buy moonshine coming from your neighbor's garage, it's got 70% uh, alcohol. Um, you know, is, is it, is there, are we ever going to have enough in the, in the package? to get somebody as high as they want to be, like it versus the average person. I'm more concerned, frankly, Rebecca, about the average person's consumption, not about those that need it to be stronger because they're experts at consuming it. Um, what are we doing yeah, about no, the en entry-level people? I think that's a really fair point. And I think a lot of people consuming edibles in a newly legal market, those folks who before, you know, maybe weren't even purchasing cannabis because they didn't know what was in it. Now they're like, right. you know, this is legal. I need this entry-level product. So I think your point is a really fair one. But my other point is that when we hear about kids consuming edibles or people having too much, we often don't know the source of that. We did one study here at the University of Calgary that showed, you know, emergency department visits in Alberta did go up. But the problem with our data is we just don't know what the source was. Was that legal cannabis or were these, you know, off-market products or there were people still baking brownies at home and, and kids got access to them? So... Uh, I think you're right. We still need to know more and we need to track this for a little while longer to see what is the problem with certain uh, access to edibles or, you know, is it really, do we really need a, a stronger product? 
Yeah, I mean, if there's a package that's got 10, you know, 10, 10 milligram, you know, uh, gummies in it, just eat three of them if you want 30 milligrams worth. I don't know. Um, what about the packaging? There's a lot to be talked about here as it relates to the packaging. I guess similar to what they've gone through uh, with cigarette packaging over the years. And now what they're talking about in terms of alcohol labeling and, term, you know, making sure that people understand alcohol can lead to cancer and all this kind of, you know, ugly, scary stuff. Um, what, do you, what are they looking for in terms of the changes and alterations to packaging and what's your thought on it? Yeah, I mean, this is a place where I think it is, again, tricky because they're looking to, you know, distinguish themselves to have certain brands, um, you know, to stand out. Uh, but what, from what we know of tobacco is that branding was really used in a very pernicious way, uh, targeting certain communities. You know, we had Virginia Slim cigarettes, which were targeting women and the macho image of the Marlboro Man and even some, you know, brands that targeted uh, homeless folks in the U.S. We saw this in the tobacco industry documents. So public health fought very hard for the branding and for the warning labels and we have labels on these packaging, but we don't have the graphic warning labels that we have on, on cigarettes, right? So it's kind of this middle ground and cannabis is pushing back to say, well, we, we want to be able to brand and promote and, uh, you know, be different from tobacco and uh, be more like alcohol. And, uh, you know, I'm very cautious about allowing for that because I, I don't think it will lead to anything positive. Yeah, I, I, I'm totally with you there. You know, we look at packaging. I don't know if you're a consumer of cannabis or not. It's none of my business. And you're welcome to share if you want. But if you've been in a cannabis store, you know, the packaging just to buy a, you know, a $25, you know, highly impacted joint with two grams of, of uh, THC in it in, in, in some blunt form, uh, you know, it's rolled kind of in a cigarette, cigar paper. Um, the packaging, the, the glass tubes that go with these things, uh, the, you know, are the, it's one of the greatest cost to providing the, you know, the, the product is the packaging. Um, why don't we look at maybe reducing some of the, 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 the funkiness to the packaging and put a little more into the artwork and the ingredients so that people have some better understanding of actually what's inside the, the edible, what's inside the package. Um, and by the way, some of them are almost impossible to open. Um, so yeah so you know go ahead yeah well i mean that's one of the reasons why i don't mind sharing we just have edibles in in my household you know we keep them stored away from our children and in a place that's safe and secure um you know ironically we don't have alcohol stored in the same way but you know these things look like gummy candies and and you want to keep them safe and secure and the packaging is a ziploc bag it's a little bit more minimal but it has the information that you need to see on it the flavor uh the thc percentage the dose uh and to me you know that that's fine i i don't need like a special package that's pink and branded to me as a woman and i i don't need i don't need other things i i need the basic information and a and a secure minimal package right yeah, it's incredible to think that they spend so much money on packaging, but they can't advertise this to anybody. Uh, what's the future look like for uh, Canadian uh, cannabis sellers, do you think? Yeah, well, I'm hoping that, that some of this goes through and we're balancing like the public health concerns with, I think, what um, I hear from industry is like to have a viable, thriving industry. And I think it's very rocky in the beginning. But as I said, there's always this tension between like the unfettered market and, and the public health concern. And so I think they're always going to push back against public health regulations. But in some sense, I think, you know, I'm even though I do work in public health, I'm sympathetic when they say we're kind of handcuffed here. We can't promote our product. Um, we can't give consumers the type of product they want. And, uh, you know, this, this leads people to go to the illicit market. You know, I'm sorry, I don't have about... an easy answer. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. You can say... <laughs> You're giving me the, the answer that you got. It's good enough for me. Uh, you know, we got... one, one thing I kind of want to leave us on a little bit here is uh, they don't talk on these, in the packaging, they don't talk, people don't understand enough about what it means to buy cannabis from some local guy around the corner. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there. Uh, what about that? What about the warning signs of non-regulated uh, products? Yeah, well, I think for years, this is how people purchase their cannabis. And some had, you know, probably not great experiences. And some people had, you know, a regular source uh, that they trusted. 
Um, I've shared this before, you know, my parents were, were classic hippies of the seventies and they grew it in our backyard and hung plants to dry in our basement. Like this is how, um, old school people used to, to access cannabis. So some of it may have been fine and some of it may have been contaminated with pesticides. If it's, you know, grown in a grow up and things like that. So I really want to share with people that legal is always better and safer, especially like novice users. So I, I far prefer like a legal safe source where you know the content and you know it hasn't been grown like in any way with any additives. 